0: If you've been attending Community Grace over the last several weeks, then you know that we've been in the book of Colossians together as a church, journeying verse by verse, and we have explored the radiance of the majesty of Jesus Christ, who is, as we've titled our series, greater than all. Jesus Christ, the the, the Messiah of God, is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the mode and method of our salvation. And he has filled us with himself. And he is the one we walk through every step of this journey in life, no matter what we're walking through. He is the one that's with us, walking through that with us. Well, in chapter two, as we close chapter two today, the Apostle Paul, for the sake of people's precious souls, tells us that we should stand in this truth, and that we should go the next level and fight against the lies and the deceptions that try to lead people astray and destroy those precious souls. And he models this for us as we've seen in the last couple of weeks of chapter 2. And we're going we're to finish chapter 2 today. This is especially relevant today. The world is hungrily searching for answers, for meaning, for solutions. Christ provides them all. But there's a lot of deceptions and lies that are trying to trick people and lead people astray. Part of our ministry, part of our unique calling as followers of Christ, is to proclaim the truth in the face of those deceptions. And that's where the Holy Spirit has us today a very fitting and relevant word from Colossians 2 8 through 15. And God has provided us the man to preach it today. We have a guest speaker today that I want to introduce. Sam Yiter. Sam is a friend of mine from seminary back in Tacoma, Washington. We met in Tacoma, Washington in 2001. I came in as a new student. He was an upperclassman. Does seminary have upperclassmen? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. And uh, he, was, he was good to me. Well, we knew each other for a, for a little while before we realized we were both from the Warsaw area. Uh, what a revelation that was to, to discover about each other. Now, 20 years later, we are both serving Christ in Warsaw, Indiana, and it's a pleasure to have him today. A few more things about him. After pastoring for 15 years in the Chicago area, God has now led Sam to serve Christ as a businessman here in the Warsaw area. He's a co-owner of Synergy Partnerships Building Company, and our own Phil Beery works for him. And I asked Phil, is he a good boss? I just had to make sure. And Phil said yes. So Sam is here today. Uh, in addition to all of that, after joining uh, WLGBC, Winona late Grace Brethren Church, uh, shortly after his family moved back to Warsaw, uh, it didn't take them long, WLGBC long, to realize that he's an asset to the church. And he started uh, as one of their main preachers on their preaching rotation. Uh, now he is an elder overseer at the church as well. And I am thrilled this morning that we get to link our two churches together uh, in spirit and through Sam today. I'm thrilled that we get to discover what the Holy Spirit has planned for us in the book of Colossians today, chapter 2. And I'm thrilled that Sam is a good preacher. So will you please give Sam a warm greeting from your living rooms right now as he comes. Come on up, Sam. Thanks for being here.
1: I can hear all the digital applause. That's true. That is wonderful. Well, I am really glad to be with you. There's a skeleton crew here, um, and it's, that's nice. It gives me people to look at. Um, and it's also good to be um, welcoming you if you're uh, tuning in online. That's awesome. I hope that this is encouraging to you at this time. Um, as Reg said, uh, we both grew up in the Warsaw area, but uh, ended up meeting in Washington State. Um, I loved Washington State gorgeous. Uh, one of the, there are two bad things about living on the West Coast, and one was we didn't really have sunsets because of you have the ocean, and so you don't have it hitting things and reflecting off of things in the way it does um, here in the Midwest. The second thing that we don't have on the West Coast is thunder. Uh, very odd, we'd, we'd lived there for quite a while. We were there for five years before we realized that, like, what's different? It's no thunder, but there was one day that I heard thunder, and um, it was this. Will this will tell you a little bit about me in seminary as an upperclassman? Um, I skipped chapel pretty regularly, which I don't recommend. If you're, I don't recommend you skip church either. Uh, but there was one time when I lured Reg because one of the things that we primarily did together was golf together, and so I lured him away during a a, a chapel service. And we went to a little, a little nine-hole course right there in downtown Tacoma. And throughout the, throughout the round of two hours, we had rain, sunshine, snow, hail, and the only time that I was in Washington, thunder. Um, and so I felt like that was God saying, yes, keep golfing. <laughs> All right, turn with me in your Bible to Colossians 2. Uh, Last week, Reg um, covered verses 8 through 15. And in that, he focused on the work that God has done in us um, and on our identity in Jesus. Um, And that was really important. I listened to it online last week. Um, Our passage this morning, uh, verses 16 through 23, is a hinge. I'm big on structure. I love to see how authors... Um, How the biblical authors structured their books and their letters, and so we are um, this morning. We are looking at the hinge between what Reg talked about last week, what God did in us, our identity, those things that he mentioned last time, and also then the hinge between that and what is the real life application of that. Uh, I'm jealous that Reg gets to preach the next chapter, chapter three of Colossians, because that's one of my favorite um, bits. Because God's going you know, Paul's going to say, um, set your mind on heavenly things, and then he's going to talk about your earthly relationships. That's a lot of fun. So, it's kind of like, well, how did we get from what God did in us at the cross, for us at the cross, how does that relate to our everyday interactions with each other? Well, that's what we're covering. We're, we're covering the transition between those two things this morning. So, look at verse 16. Therefore, and of course, you know, whatever you see, therefore, you have to look back at what is it connecting, what is it talking about, what's, um, what is it pointing at? And it is, it is what Reg, it's what I've been saying, Reg talked about, it is the work that God did in us because God took um, our sin, nailed it to the cross in Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Father and the Spirit to raise him from the dead, Um, because of that, because we have been freed, and not only freed from our sins, but it says uh, we have been freed from the Old Testament law, the the commands that were written that stood against us. Uh, The Old Testament law proclaims that Sam is a sinner and falls short of the glory of God. Um, That statement which stood against us, Jesus has done away with there on the cross, and we are free. Therefore, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Um, I think, I must have maybe accidentally clicked this.
0: All right, not sure what's,
1: I've lost my back screen. There we go, it's back. I just have some pictures. They don't matter. (laughs) Um, So what is Paul talking about here when he says, don't let anyone judge you with regard to what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, new moon or Sabbath day? Um, All of those things are items that were um, described, how we're supposed to do them in the law. Um, The only one that, the one that um, surprises me is the new moons. That sounds very pagan to me. That sounds very um, cultish in some way. But actually, if you look back, um, Chronicles, Numbers, Psalms, um, they all make reference to the new moon festivals that were part of the law. And so what Paul is saying here is don't let anyone judge you by how you interact with the Old Testament law anymore that might sound like a strange thing for Paul to say in the middle of Colossians, a book to people who are Gentiles. They're not Jews. Now, there may have been some Jews there, but largely, the letters that were written uh, by Paul are to Gentiles. Why that's there and why it's significant, why Paul cares about um, how someone might uh, try to hold someone else to the Old Testament laws, because there was a group of people who were following Paul around, And they weren't groupies or roadies. They were Judaizers. Um, And they were a group of people who were obsessed with the Jewish law. um, And they would follow Paul from city to city. And they would try to stir up trouble for him. And if they couldn't stir up trouble for him, they would try to talk his converts. And when Paul left town, they would try to talk his converts into the idea that they now had to follow the law. They would say something like, oh, yeah, Jesus, he's a good start but what you really need is Jesus plus the law. And so um, Paul frequently wrote about that, and now we see here that he is writing back to the Colossians at some point after he had left them and was further on in his travels, and he's saying to them, don't let the Judaizers judge you. In a sense, Paul is saying, if Jesus, the Messiah, has told you, you are free from the law, why are you going to let a Judaizer come and tell you, you are bound by the law? And this is what human teachers do. Human teachers have a tendency to impose their own set of rules on a people group. And the Judaizers were doing this. They would go along and they would say, well, Jesus is a great start, but now you have to observe this, 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 this. And that was the way you were sanctified. That was the way you were made holy. And Paul's going to take it head on, and I'll just jump ahead, spoiler alert. The law is not how you get sanctified. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the transformation of our heart and minds by the word through the work of the Holy Spirit that makes us what we want to be, which is what God wants us to be, holy. Holy. All right, so that's, uh, that's that first section there. Don't let anyone judge you. Um, well, why not? Sam, um, how can you say that the law is bad? How can you say it's a bad thing to follow the law? After all, if the law was given by God to God's people, and now we're God's people, why shouldn't we uh, be following the law? And my answer is, we're not going to turn there, but you can look it up on your own later. My answer is that the law was given to God's people, yes, for a season. In fact, Paul is going to say uh, elsewhere that the law was a tutor. The law was, and, and by a tutor he doesn't mean someone who sits with you to study math. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't mean that. He means the person who raised a child. The person who brought a child from childhood to be ready to enter dad's business. That's what a tutor did uh, in this ancient... Greek culture to which Paul is writing. And so Paul is saying what the law did was it took you as infants and brought you to the point that you were ready to see what God was doing in Messiah. When Jesus shows up, the law informed the people who got to meet Jesus and say, here's what I'm supposed to think about him. Here's how I'm supposed to respond to him. That was the value of the law. The law had other practical values. uh, other practical value like keeping them from certain diseases and giving them insights into um, how the world works and all those things are very practical benefits and they're great but the law really was supposed to do was to show us our deep need for a savior it was supposed to show us what God is doing in his great plan and his great trajectory for humanity so that when the Messiah showed up we said ah that's who we've been waiting on I'm going to follow him. And the Judaizers are backing all of that up. They're trying to say, um, let's, let's loop around and let's turn around and let's go back to the tutor. For crying out loud, when you are finally grown and you are given entrance into the family business as an, as, a, uh, as an adult, are you really going to say, I still need a nanny? That's what the law is. The law's not bad. It's good. You need that tutor, but it was good for a season. When the tutor comes, or when uh, when Jesus comes, ditch the tutor. The second reason that we don't follow it um, is the next verse, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The second reason that we don't follow the law, aside from the fact that Jesus has come and now we're adults in him once we know him, um, the second reason is that the law wasn't even real. And um, if we can hit the next slide, I'm going I'm to just go ahead and put this away and I'll have you advance it so I don't mess it up again. Um, Hebrews, I think Paul is thinking of when, um, when he's writing this. So turn over or you can just look at the screen if you want to, but if you're at home and maybe Uh, You don't have the screen available. You can look at it. Um, Hebrews 9, uh, we're not going to take time to read the whole chapter, although that would be a lot of fun. But chapter 9 recounts how the tabernacle and the temple was set up. And it talks about all the different sacrifices. And it's a pretty glorious chapter when you get to see. And if you were to read in the Old Testament about what the temple was, um, if you were to see mock-ups of what it looked like, um, at the time of Jesus um, and, and earlier, um, I've been to Israel. And I've gotten to like walk the perimeter of it. I've gotten to be on the Temple Mount. I mean, obviously the Temple isn't there anymore, but you get to see the foundation stones. It is a glorious place. And it would make sense, especially if you'd gotten to see it as a youth uh, or if you'd worshipped in the Temple uh, prior to Jesus' coming, it would make sense that maybe you would have an emotional connection to the temple and you would want to stay in that Old Testament system. I don't know. That, that could make sense. But here's um, so that's Hebrews 9. When you get to the end of Hebrews, it says this Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Notice that. The copies. What the author is saying is that the temple. That we were that that humanity was given the tabernacle that Israel was given was a copy of something else. Um, the ancient um, Gentile would have been thinking of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. They would have been thinking of Plato's ideal chair. Like there's a chair that we see, and then there is a spirit chair somewhere that's the ultimate chair, and all chairs are a picture. a copy of that one chair so that paul is tapping into that but it's real it's true because he's going to go on he's going to describe what jesus did Uh, all of the the temple and all of its ceremony was a copy it was a shadow it was pointing to something bigger and something true it was necessary that all these things be purified Um, with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. When Jesus, on the cross, doing his work, and I don't know the exact timing of everything because scripture doesn't tell us, but in the midst of that, when Jesus was paying for my sin and for your sin... He went to the heavenly temple. And he went there, not with the blood of goats, the Passover lamb. He went with his own blood. I have no idea what that means. I don't know what that looks like. We could argue about that. We could form a new cult that, uh, that makes that our priority. We don't need to do that. But what we know is that Jesus did something there with his own blood for my sin for your sin. Uh, if we can hit the next one, it continues in Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In the next one. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offering? In other words, if the law did anything, If the sacrifice that you took as a sinner in the Old Testament, if that sacrifice for your sins could actually do anything, that would have been the last one you needed to take. But it couldn't. It didn't. It was a picture. It was meant to make us think about other true spiritual realities. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And what the author is saying, what Paul is saying when he talks about this being a shadow is that Jesus has offered the real thing. If the real thing has come, why do you want a shadow? Why do you want the fake thing? Why would we go back to the law to the thing that was just the picture or the shadow? He goes on um, back in Colossians now. Colossians uh, 3 uh, 218. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Um, I don't know exactly what he means. I don't know exactly who he's thinking about, but this is probably a way to describe some of the false teachers that were pursuing them. Uh, False teachers often are really actually all about themselves. They're about whatever benefit they're able to, to derive out of the people that they are shamming. Um, And Paul says, don't let their false teaching disqualify you for the prize of knowing Jesus. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. We've seen these books come on the market, right? Um, I saw, not to bash Mormons, but I saw a book of, you know, there's a Book of Mormon, um, a book about the Book of Mormon in in, uh, Pastor Reg's office. And we kind of joked about, like, yeah, I'm using the Book of Mormon this morning. But that book, and by the way, that's not the only one. We have tons of books just in, I would call them fiction. Uh, They're in the nonfiction sections of people who say they have experiences with God or with angels. Um, And they go into great detail about what he has seen. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God designed it to grow Um, these people the people who push their version of the law who push a new spirituality of some kind are broken in their thinking they are broken in their spiritual relationship to god in fact paul describes that brokenness as being disconnected from the head Uh, Paul is drawing very heavily on lots of other writings, including his own. Um, and here I think he's thinking of his writing about the body. Can the hand say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, or because I'm not a foot, or whatever? Um, what happens to a hand when it's no longer connected to the head? It dies? It's useless? If my hand suddenly stops being connected to my head via the network of nerves and muscles and ligaments and bone structures and the fascia and everything that connects it, if that hand is suddenly separated from the head, it is now useless. It is broken. It's gross. <laughs> it's laying there and you don't want anything to do with it. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't have a connection with these people. They've been disconnected from Jesus. And if someone is disconnected from Jesus in the head, they are not a part of our body. I try to be as inclusive in my thinking as I can. I want to bring people in. Jesus... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I spoke at my, at my church about the woman at the well. And Jesus is beautifully inclusive with her about all that it takes is to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He didn't care which mountain they were on. Well, an ancient Jew would have cared about which mountain you were on. And here was Jesus being inclusive, but we have to understand that there are times when we can't be inclusive. You can't, be, you can't say someone is in the body when they are disconnected from the head. And that's what Paul's going after here. There are deceptions that are being waged against them, and he wants his people to know what those are. Since you have died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Um, Here, I think Paul is no longer talking about the law, but he is talking about um, ancient Gnostic teachers. And uh, we have a real-life picture of uh, an ancient Gnostic teacher sitting in his pose. I think it will be there in a minute. There, that's exactly what he looked like. No, I'm just kidding. That's not not an ancient picture. (laughs) It's a a tough crowd when there's like eight of us. So, there was a group of people, there were two major threats to the people that Paul was um, preaching to. And one was Judaizers and the other were the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were a group of people, I don't know if you've already talked about Gnostics. Okay, the Gnostics were a group of people who were uh, following around and they were uh, preaching a secret spirituality. Secret truth, and it's crazy. Uh, they believe in like one god creating another god, creating another god, creating another god, and then you had this long chain of gods until finally the last one that we cared about was Jesus. So they incorporate, they syncretized uh, their pagan teachings with Christianity, and so they were trying to say that Jesus was just the most recent iteration of this of this god, and he's several links down. Um, but these Gnostics would pursue. Um, the converts that Paul was making and tell them that in order to be really spiritual, they had to deny their bodies. They had to separate themselves from their bodies. And you did that one of two ways. You either did that by partying really hard, eating lots of food and having lots of sex, or you denied your body. And so whatever abuse you could heap on your body um, was was severing the connection between you and your body, and your body was bad, anything physical was bad. And so Paul is is now attacking not the Judaizers but the Gnostics. And he's saying, so one, no, we're not going back to the law. Two, don't go back to those Gnostic teachers. Don't go back to the people who tell you that, that physical things are evil and that spiritual things are good. Jesus had a spiritual body. The Gnostics would have eventually taught that Jesus was just uh, a spiritual body. Eventually that took uh, the form of what's called docetism. You don't really care about that, but you can write down a little later. Uh, which, which says that, that Jesus only appeared as a man. Wasn't really a man. It just looked like it in a, in a very impressive hologram. Um, from Star Trek era was Jesus, is what the docetists taught. The Gnostics would have taught. Um, and so Paul says: if you died to the basic principles of the world, in other words, you are no longer governed by what men teach. That's, that would have been the Gentile background. They were probably not governed by the law. That was probably a new teaching that had pursued Paul but rather they had been governed by all of the pagan teachings that they would have experienced. And so Paul is telling them, don't go back to that. There was no life in that. Uh, I love Star Wars, um, and every sermon that I give has a Star Wars illustration. So here's this one. Um, if you haven't seen Star Wars, then something wrong with you. Um, there's a point in episode four, which was the original Star Wars where um, they're going back to the Alderaan system, they're going there to bring some news, you know, the, the information they get from the droid, and they're taking it there, and then the Rebel Alliance will, will hopefully get it and be able to defeat the bad guys. When they get to the, when they get to Alderaan, it has been blown up. Sorry to ruin that for you, but it's been blown up, and there is just a bunch of rubble floating in the middle of space when they come out of, uh, you know, hyperspace, and so. They went back to a place that had nothing for them anymore. And that's what Paul is telling them to not do. And this one probably relates to you and I a little better. Before we came to know Christ here living in America, we probably followed whatever the American God was. Whether that was success, or whether that was sex, or whether that was self-indulgence. Whatever the thing was that you pursued that was part of your life Before you came to know Jesus, I was saved at five, so mine was uh, being greedy. I don't know. I didn't have a lot of time for a lot of those things, but I was pretty self-indulgent as a five-year-old. There is nothing back there for you. That's what Paul's saying. There are times when the Christian life starts to become very difficult. It starts to become very challenging. Uh, We want a way out. We want something that is easier. And that we always have a tendency to go back to the thing that was comfortable before. We see that in a metaphorical sense. I mean, it really happened, but it was a metaphor with Peter. Uh, Peter, after the death of Jesus, um, is crushed by his grief. He is crushed by the grief of his, um, of his rejection of who Jesus was there in the garden. And he goes fishing. Nothing wrong with going fishing. But it represented who he was before he met Jesus, before his call away from fishing fish and fishing men. And I think that we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to to want to go back to something that was comfortable when our spiritual life gets challenging. Um, And so that's what Paul's saying. Don't go back there. There's nothing back there for you. There's nothing back there in the law. There's nothing back there in whatever humanist teachings So why do you submit to its rules of do not handle, verse 21, do not taste, do not touch? These are all destined to perish with use. The law has become null and void. Human teachings are going to be burned up at the end of all things. They are destined to to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining indulgence. In other words, the asceticism, the self-deprivation might look spiritual.
0: If you knew someone who had,
1: who had sold all of their possessions and, or given all of their possessions away and they're sitting on a column in the woods, you might say, wow, that guy's had a really serious transformation. Yes, he's lost his mind. <laughs> there is something broken in his thinking that is suggesting to him that he has arrived by totally disconnecting himself from humanity Paul says don't buy into things that only look spiritual remember are we going to go after the shadow or are we going to go after the real thing that's our choice that Paul is giving to us this morning um, if we could go to the applications page, that would be great. Thank you. Um, so how do we apply this? How do we think about what to do with this passage for us this morning? My guess is that Judaizers have not been pursuing you. to try to keep you from eating bacon. They have a really hard time nowadays, right? I mean, bacon. Um, and our culture in America does not promote asceticism. <laughs> We are not about denial of the self, are we? Like, I, I don't know of anyone out there who is preaching that. That is not a very successful new, new teaching in our culture. Um, but things like that, I have, uh, at different times, my wife and I have gotten into different things um, for one reason or another. Um, we've known people who get into, um, you know, veganism or something like that, which if you're doing it for health reasons is one thing um, that we could talk about. But um, there have been people who pursue that because they think that it, provides a, sp- a level of spirituality that they might not have otherwise. Um, so we're not in a whole lot of threat to, to that idea of the limiting of ourselves. So we, that's probably not a real threat to us, um, but we have some greater ones. Um, Paul here is calling for a separation. And I've talked about inclusiveness, and, he's, and uh, we also need to talk about how do we separate ourselves. So when I was growing up, separation looked a certain way. I was taught as a child, don't play with playing cards. You play with rook, skippo, whatever, uh, Dutch Blitz, which came along later. That was crazy. Um, but no face cards. So if you didn't play with face cards, you were you were a good boy. Don't go to don't see a movie in the theater. You could watch it at home, but don't watch it in the theater because someone might see you going in. They might think that you're going to watch the naughty film rather than the good film. Um, I was. Largely taught, and not all these were by my parents necessarily, but, but by, my, by, by people in my upbringing, uh, no secular music. So don't listen to any music that isn't um, Christian in its background. Um, so separation is, um, is important, but I think a lot of times we are going after the fake thing. I think a lot of times um, the hope is that if we can just set up, if we can set up a well-defined barrier, then I can do everything else. But I don't do that, so I'm good. I can watch whatever I want on my VCR. We used to have VCRs. Uh, those Those of you who are my age and older, tell the children around you what a VCR is. We need to think about our separation, and in my opinion, as I grew up in something that took me a while to mature into, is that what ought to separate us is our character. What ought to separate us is our love and our compassion. The markers of our sanctification, as we're coming to be more and more like Jesus, ought to be the things that actually separate us. By the way, they are also the things that are attractive. They are the things that will welcome people in, um, depending on their spiritual receptivity. Um, What I was describing to you, the no cards, the no theater, and the no secular music, that's called legalism. Um, Legalism is a, um, a, a way of thinking, and no one ever says, I'm a legalist. Um, But legalism is a way of thinking that believes that we can in some way get grace or merit from God by something we do. So the word grace in Greek means gift. So right now you see where I'm going. Like, what can you do to earn a gift? Once you've earned a gift, it is now wages. It is not gift. A hard truth to the spiritual life that um, I still struggle with is that grace cannot be earned. And there are systems out there of uh, sacramentalism that would suggest if you do X, if you take communion, you you automatically get grace. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that you can take communion and be killed because of your heart. uh, Being disconnected from the body. Um, so, there is no mechanism where we can do that. But legalism says, well, if you read your Bible in the morning, you're going to have a good day. If you say the prayers that you're supposed to pray, then things are going to go smoothly. And I'm always tempted by that. When my work is hard, when the workload is uh, becoming unbearable, a part of me always is more immediately receptive to the idea of praying. Because I somehow think, well, it'll, be, it'll just get better. if I just pray. And I've had, to, I've had to work really hard on that. to to change my thinking and say, actually, the reason I should want to pray is because this is about dependence on God. It's about relationship with the Son. Um, This is why I should be praying, Um, not because I'm hoping that I will get something from him. Why is legalism attractive? Well, I think there's some good reasons and bad reasons. A good reason is some of us just want to know what God wants us to do. Don't you want, if, if I could give you a writing that said, here's what God wants you to do, wouldn't you say, let me have it. And I will, I will do these things. So legalism is appealing in that way because it seems to say, here are, the th- here are the five things you can do each day to get God on your side. To know that you've, that you've pleased him. Um, sometimes legalism is attractive because of theological childishness. Um, I think that theological education and instruction is really important. That way we are not taken captive by the false teachings. Biggest thing that we need to do with our people, with our children, with our friends, is to instruct them on the real thing so that the fake things are readily identifiable. Um, so sometimes, you know, that, that line that I had at the beginning of the, earlier in the sermon, where I said, well, hey, the law's a good thing. It's given to God's people. By God. Why shouldn't we be following it for we're God's people? If you buy into that, that represents theological childishness. Because you haven't understood the complexity of the work of God, the trajectory of his work in history, and you haven't read enough scripture in context to understand what the law is and what the law isn't. So sometimes legalism is attractive for that reason. Um, A third reason is legalism uh, gives us a way to pay penance. If you're not part of a religious system where you really have penance, and you may look down on those systems um, as if we can pay for our own sins, you and I often think that we can. And when you've hurt someone, don't you want to make up for it? I do. And so sometimes it is tempting to think that our service to God or to others is a way of paying for our own sins. My friends, if if you're paying for your own sins, then you, you are not paying the debt in full. Like it like can't be paid, you, you can't do it fourth reason, last reason that I think legalism is attractive is because it represents a way to control our relationship with God because what you and I want is control Corona is going crazy um, no one knows what to make of it, we all have a hundred emails a day from every business and group that we're working with that's telling us how they're dealing with it, um, we want a measure of control, anything that gives us a measure of control makes us feel better and I think sometimes legalism does the exact same thing It takes some of the mystery out of who God is, some of the apparent randomness of his activity, and it lets us feel a measure of control. So what should we do? Every sermon I do ends with so what? Who cares? (laughs) Who cares, Sam? We've been sitting here for three hours. Um, What's your point? Would you please just tell us? Um, Here's the so what. What? The false teachers are disconnected from the body, right? The so what is, get connected to the head. That's what Paul is calling us to do. I think that he probably has Jesus' uh, words about the vine and the branches in mind. Get connected to the vine. Jesus is the vine, you and I are the branches. If we're not in him, if any branch is not in him, it gets cut off, right? And it gets thrown into the fire. Well, I don't want that I, I want to be useful and able to bear fruit he's the vine I'm the branch we abide in him and that abiding uh, means living in dwelling in it's like pitching your tent in the vine finding your nourishment do you like food? I love food eat Jesus be nourished by him. As we are nourished by him, we will fight the deceptions. And in fact, the spirit will be working in us through his word, through our relationship with him, uh, using our prayer as ways to fight the deception. That's the so what. The so what is get connected to the vine. And it might be for the first time. It might be that you haven't known Jesus and you're like, you're talking about this crazy tabernacle and Jesus taking his blood to a temple in the sky. That sounds crazy. Um, there are more simple versions of it. Uh, John 3.16 is like really easy one, right? We believe in the work that Jesus did on the cross for us. We accept that we were a sinner, that we are a sinner, that we're going to fail, that we have that we have disobeyed God in our lives and that we accept that Jesus' death on the cross is in my place. That's getting connected. And if you, once you already know Him, then it is finding nourishment in Him, and you can't help but get you can't get nourishment from Jesus without being in His word, without being in community with His people, without talking to Him. If your prayer life feels kind of hollow, I would encourage you to do something I did in college, and that's find a bench pretty easy to find an empty bench right now find a bench sit down and imagine that jesus is there beside you in bodily form and speak out loud and i found that for me a very helpful mechanism to overcome the feeling of prayers bouncing off a ceiling and praying in my head and the distractedness of thinking about minecraft 10 seconds into a prayer third so what is come next week don't usually make that a major pitch, but this section that we've been talking about this morning is a hinge. It's hinging between the work that Jesus has done for us, our identity in Christ, and what he expects out of us in our everyday lives. Not the big Disney, what's my purpose thing, but what is my daily calling from God? And that's, I haven't seen his notes, but that's what Reg is talking about next, is setting our mind on heavenly things and the and the earthly significance of that. So I would encourage you, do your reading. Read the book of Colossians between now and next time. Review in your mind what Pastor Red just talked about and then be ready next week, um, I think, to be challenged. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have not left us alone. You have not left us um, without knowledge. Um, we are not like the Gnostics who couldn't know what was true. We are not like the Judaizers who were in bondage to a system that we could not, uh, we could not succeed in that system. We could not honor you and love you in that system in the way you've called us to. Uh, we thank you that you have freed us from that through the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit convicting us and moving in us and re, uh, making us alive with him. I pray that we'd be encouraged today, that we'd be encouraged to connect to the vine, to find nourishment and life and joy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Blessings on you.